Welcome to the Knowing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bachman, a licensed professional counselor. On the show, we explore who the real Jesus is, with his love, with his power, and with his endless pursuit of humanity, with the hope of changing our lives. So, today we have a special guest with us, Tim Hawley, lead pastor of The Journey, West County. Very excited to have you, Tim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned... Uh, you know, a while back ago on, hey, we're going through the book of John. Is there a particular passage that stands out to you? And you mentioned that John 11 is a significant portion of scripture to you. Can you tell us what's going on in John 11 and and why does it mean something to you? Yeah, John 11 is a passage where Jesus's friend Lazarus has died. And as he has passed away, we see this interaction that Jesus has with his family and how grief is being processed. And I think the reason why it stands out to me is because grief is one of those areas that I think a lot of people, one, just struggle to experience in their own lives, but I think also just struggle to understand as followers of Jesus, what does it look like to grieve? Um, How do we grieve well? How do we grieve in a way that is honest, but also clings to the hope that we have in Jesus? And so as I have walked through um, a lot of death uh, with people in the church and have done a number of funerals along the way, I have just seen this as a point of confusion and hardship for many people as they try to process their own stories. Mm. What has helped you, uh, you know, so, I mean, I think you touched on a very common thing that in the church and maybe even culture in general, I mean, hate to make generalities, but I don't know a ton of people that just really embrace grief. What has helped you take this view that grief isn't something that we run away from. It's not something that we just, you know, you know, scrutinize or what has helped you take this approach to grief? Well, I think part of it is having to deal honestly with the reality of grief. Um, You can run away from grief in the sense of you can cover it up. You can participate in escapist behavior. You can try to ignore uh, what is happening. But at the end of the day, grief lingers and grief exists. And so I think that the reason why I've taken interest in it is because in a lot of ways, people don't know how to do it well. Mm. Uh, people have not really seen it modeled well. Yeah. And I think the truth is uh, grief is not linear, nor is it formulaic. And so the problem is it's hard to really understand grief until you experience it and you're in it. Because I, you can listen to all the podcasts yeah. like we're doing right now. <laughs> you can read all the textbooks. Yeah. But there's a difference between cognitively knowing what grief is and then having to walk through it yourself. Absolutely. Grief, grief is messy and it's something you can't really prepare for. Maybe you have some tools, right. but like you almost have to learn, sadly, in the midst of it, and which makes it even more difficult sometimes. So back to, you know, said John 11, Lazarus, we have a death and resurrection. What else stands out to you in this experience with Jesus, disciples, um, and other grievers. What else? Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that I find fascinating about this text that in a lot of ways are counterintuitive to how we think about grief and even our own stories. The first is just Jesus himself. Uh, His friend dies. His disciples come to him, and they even acknowledge that and with him. And his response is to say, okay, we're going to wait here for a few more days. Yeah. And, and again, I think that most of us, our tendency is when there is crisis, uh, we believe that we are responsible for entering into that crisis with a level of immediacy. But I think there's something that Jesus shows us about grief, just in the fact that he waits and he allows the people in Lazarus's family to sit in their grief. Uh, he doesn't rescue them. He doesn't immediately just say, here's the miracle and he's healed. He allows them to to sit in it for a couple days. And you have to imagine just the pain that they're in, uh, the sadness that they have, and the hopelessness that exists because they don't know what Jesus is about to do. And yet I think that what what this passage is showing us is as painful as the waiting is, uh, the waiting is necessary because it's as we sit in pain, in the tension of whatever we're feeling, even with the sense of hopelessness, it's where we can meet God and it's where restoration can begin in our stories of pain. A couple other things that stand out to me that I think are really fascinating is that as Jesus comes, uh, almost immediately as they run out to him, their question is, uh, why did you not come sooner? And, and I think underneath that question, what they're really asking is, God, where were you? Uh, or Jesus, where were you? Yeah. And I think it's a universal question that many of us ask when we experience pain in our lives. God, why didn't you fix this? 
God, why, why didn't you come sooner? God, why don't you care? And to me, what I take away from it is the fact that God gives us permission to ask those questions. That in the midst of our grief, God gives us permission to wrestle and to express our pain, to express the areas that we feel like we need to cry out to him. And what's interesting is Jesus, as he answers that question, doesn't answer it with, well, let me tell you where I was and let me tell you what I was doing. Instead, he answers with, let me tell you who I am. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And within that, he reminds them of why he can offer them hope, even in the midst of the pain that they're experiencing in that moment. And so what I love is that Jesus offers us this vision of just the things that we often experience as we are experiencing grief. And then he takes it a step further and he shows us that he grieves himself because later on in the passage, we see that he's weeping. And here's what's amazing. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to heal his friend, and yet he weeps. Why? Because he's experiencing real pain because of the death that has happened to his friend. That's powerful. Man, so I'm definitely, I'm hearing you say that, like, so Jesus is entering the story. He lets himself be affected by us. He also, I mean, I think it's, I think it's true, but it's also a challenging statement that you're saying that God is allowing us to be in those moments, right? He just doesn't come and rescue us, yeah. which is so difficult yeah. because it's like there are, like you said, I mean, the it, it begs the where are you, God, and why, but then also helpful to attach that to it sounds like the person of God, he, he can handle those questions. Yeah. He's not afraid of us being, it sounds like frustrated with him or like questioning and but I'm, I'm not going to lie, man, like as, as someone who's gone through grief as well, like it's so hard. Like I, I wish you would just rescue. I wish you would just fix. Um, what do you say to someone who might be in the middle? And I know there's no right answer, right? Like there's nothing that could take away grief. I'm trying to think of uh, if someone is in that wrestling stage, what would you maybe say to them or encourage them in the midst of their feeling the pain without seeing the God being present, if you will? Yeah, I think the thing that I would begin with is just acknowledging the reality of their pain and the need for them to be honest in it. Um, I think that one of the things that Christians can oftentimes be guilty of is we want to move to resurrection hope yeah. really quickly mm. without actually dealing honestly with the pain and, and the realities of what pain looks like on this side of heaven. And so I think that I would, one, just say, hey, it, it's okay to feel all the things that you're feeling. It's okay to acknowledge anger and doubt and frustration and sadness because that's an honest expression of a real need that exists as a reality of what you're experiencing or what you have bear, had to witness. Uh, so I think that that's a big piece of what I would just acknowledge before people and allow them to see. And yet also what you said is true, which is what God offers us in our pain is his presence. And I also believe that God, all throughout Scripture, talks about being a refuge and a strength and a God of comfort and a God of presence to us. And so even in the midst of all the things that we may feel, I trust that God is big enough to receive them, but he's also loving enough to enter into them with us. Mm, that's good. Uh, it makes me think of times in my life where, uh, and I'm not attaching this to grief per se, I think that would be insensitive, but times where I've, I've had my own pain or discomfort in a situation and I let my feelings maybe dictate uh, and change reality. And I don't necessarily believe that God is there. He doesn't feel like he's there. And so I don't believe he's there. And so saying like, man, he doesn't feel here. And I wish I felt him, but then I can actually also believe like he's beyond the feeling, at least for me as a deep feeler, it's so easy to let my feelings dictate the experience. Absolutely. And I think that what we have to do is live in the tension of truth and what we feel. So yeah. there's validation to what we feel. And we should be able to validate that in other people as we walk alongside them. And yet the other part that I have to hold on to is, do I believe that God is a faithful God? And do I believe that God is a God that I can trust? And it's in those moments where I have to look beyond what I'm feeling and even the circumstances that I'm walking through in real time to look back and look back at my own story and say, here's the things that God has done and why I can trust him and why I know he's good. Or if I can't even do that in my own story in the moment, I have to go back to the story of scripture and say, well, this is where I've seen over and over again, God show up for his people. And this is where I can find hope and comfort right now. Mm, I love that. Um, uh, 
maybe this is just me. Uh, some of you probably don't know about me because we're just getting to know each other, yeah. but I'm passionate about men and men's work and, you know, again, using another generality here, but uh, men seem to be more often than not disengaged with emotions, denying emotions. We're often not set up for successful emotion experience. It's like, don't cry, be a man, whatever. And am I reading into it or what is your take on, you know, Jesus, man, God, um, lets himself feel deeply. Is, is, is it off topic or theologically, you know, what is your take on him feeling those deep emotions, being so vulnerable with other people? Is it fair to say that that's an example of how men should be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, here's my confession to you. Uh, I do not think that I've been a person who has grieved well in my life. Uh, I think there's kind of been a marking of my life and even my own story and my family history, I don't know if I've had people model well what it looks like to live honestly in your emotions and just to be able to pour those out however you may feel and whatever that may look like. And the reason why I share that is because I don't think I'm alone. Yeah. I think for a lot of men, um, they have not seen that modeled well in other men. And yet I think that it is a part of our humanness and the way that God made us. And I think it's obviously what we see evidence in Jesus. And so because of that, to me, it's not just that God gives us permission through this example that we see in Jesus to grieve, which I think he does. But I also think that he shows us why it's necessary and why it's for our good. And so even as we look at this story and even as we think about our own lives, um, you may not be a deep feeler. Uh, There's times where I've wrestled with that in my own story, and yet my desire is to not just be content in that or not to allow myself to remain culturally conditioned to the perception we have of who a man should be, but to say, if this is an emotion of God and this is the emotion of Jesus himself, how do I grow in that in my life? Because it is appropriate at times to cry or to cry out or to feel anger and frustration towards the things that are not of God, um, as long as it's done in a righteous way. Any, I mean, maybe this is splitting hairs and um, how, any guidance, like what is a righteous way? What's not a righteous way? If that feels like too muddy of a question. We can just move on to another one, you know, first impressions on that. Yeah. I don't know if I have all the answers. I'll, I'll definitely take a, I'll definitely take a stab at it and say, um, I think one of the things that we're prone to do is we are very quick to talk to other people before we are the Lord. And so, you know what I mean? Like we, we, we want to call our friends and we want to tell them all the things that are wrong or all the ways that we're feeling. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. God gives us relationships that allow those people to be able to enter into it with us. But what I've oftentimes found is we are more prone to do that before we are going before the Lord, or even beyond that, um, I think that we just ignore the Lord altogether, and we instead choose those as outlets. And so I, I think that one, the way that, that we think about it is, um, where am I doing that? And then two, I think as we learn to do that more, and as we live in loving relationship with people, I think they will provide that feedback to us. If we're really living in vulnerability, and I would say accountability in our relationships and our friendships, I think that over time, people will tell us when we've crossed that line, when this has moved outside of righteous anger to now, hey, you're making this about you or you're stepping into sin. Um, and so that's, that's what I've had to learn in my own life. Allow other people uh, to speak that, but more importantly, allow the Lord and the Spirit working in me to gauge where my heart is and if I'm walking in righteousness or sin in a moment of pain that I may be experiencing. That's great. Gosh, that makes me even think uh, vulnerability from, from me over here for a second. Like how many times maybe I've sought comfort from my wife first or foremost, yeah. or even uh, at the absence of seeing it from God and yeah. almost making her to be my, and I know there's there's a balance here. We should find security and safety in other people. We should rely on other people. We should ask for help. But at least for me, it's tempting to find her as that primary first go-to instead of I'm wrestling, I'm talking with God and sharing things with him or a best friend instead of wrestling with him because it can be super vulnerable. You're praying and you're not yes. necessarily going to hear anything back and you're pouring your heart. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I love that, that uh, those examples that you gave of, you know, kind of yeah. unrighteous, unrighteous yeah. uh, grieving. And I think the challenge, I mean, even in the example that you use, which I've been prone to do and still am prone to do in my own life is I have realized over time that no person is meant to bear the full weight of the grief 
that I'm that I'm walking through. And so again, while your spouse may be able to hold some of that, you may have friends that can hold some of that. You have a counselor that can hold some of that. They're not meant to hold all of it. And I think that one, we put undue expectation and pressure on people, but then also we underestimate the Lord and what he can bear with us as we walk through different parts of pain in our own story. It's just powerful, man. It's just clicking right now. Like in my own story, how often I could get frustrated at human beings because I, granted, I didn't have some of the tools or some of the understanding, but was placing that weight that you're talking about on their shoulders and then being so disappointed and then uh, feeling self-justified by cutting myself off from community because it's like, well, people are just going to let you down instead of having that balance of yes, trust people. Yes. Put weight on people. But then am I expecting a a God uh, strength, a God carrying strength from humans where it needs to be him alone? Yeah, man, that's really cool. Cause I, I wonder how many people could really relate to that. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are. I'm no counselor, so I drown in some of these words, but codependency and things like that. It's yep. so tempting to feel so desperately in need of another human being and will always be disappointed and always fall short if it's not placed in Christ in our, our fullest identity. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, challenging, but cool yes. uh, to have some hope there. Yes. Um, so, uh, I love the conversation. I feel like it's flowing. Anything else? If we go back to the, you know John eleven, you know, we got the story with Lazarus, Jesus, disciples, miracles. Anything else to swing back? That's like, man, I've just been waiting to say this, or anywhere else you want to take us today. Yeah, I mean, I think that as you look at the story, um, I think one of the things that you know we we talked about, we acknowledged, but we haven't maybe dove into fully yet is just the reality of waiting. Um, and I think that that is often the biggest struggle when it comes to grief is what we are looking for is rescue and relief. And what God oftentimes offers us is not those things that does happen occasionally. Um, But again, what he offers us is his presence. He offers us himself. And I think that the struggle that I've seen with most people is what do I do in, in the gap of waiting and what do I do and whatever it is that I may be facing when I don't feel like it makes sense and I don't have answers to why this happened. And again, I think for a lot of Christians, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think that we can do a disservice to one another, is we want to put a redemptive spin so quickly on things that we then minimize the pain of waiting and even the necessity of waiting, um, which I think then causes us to misunderstand God and then it's in those moments to then become frustrated because God isn't answering prayer quick enough. God isn't relieving us quick enough. God isn't taking this away quick enough. And it just can create a cycle of additional pain and additional grief that in some ways I've seen this with people they can never recover from as a result of that. It sounds like if I'm hearing you right, there's this expectation that if I just have enough faith, if I just see it in the right lens, then it will somehow magically, miraculously just take away the pain. Yes. And when that fails, then the, not punishment, but the, the blame gets put on God and that he's a failure or that we didn't do enough and we get bitter instead of being able to say, gosh, I, you know, we can wrestle and be frustrated. Like, why does he allow this? But he's got a purpose, you know, that tension between the two and being open. If I'm hearing you maybe to like what he, either his presence that he is and or is going to provide in, in very significant ways or the ultimate maybe some redemption that we will see this side of heaven. Is that a way to look at it or what would you tweak there? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that that's the tension, right? Yeah. That's the balance where there there is redemption. Yeah, uh, we believe in a God that works all things for His good. Yeah, and I really believe even on this side of heaven, mm. there are ways that the Lord can bring redemption and restoration to people's stories. Mm. What's hard is mm. sometimes that doesn't fit the expectations of what we believe redemption should look like. Ah, there it is. Yeah. What's also hard is yeah. sometimes we don't have the full picture of what God may or may not be doing. And I think that the truth is, uh, not to nerd out on you fully, but just in a just in a post, I think just in a post enlightenment world where we want to be able to rationalize and understand everything. Part of I think living as a follower of Jesus is living in the discomfort of not having all the answers. And I think that that's where the faith component comes in, and that's where the trust component comes in. Even if I don't have a full picture of what God's going to do, is God still good? Or even if God doesn't meet my expectations, but still provides a redemptive work in my story and in my life or in the people and the community that I'm a part of, 
am I trusting that God is still good? Mm, that's great. Um, I think you touched on this too, and, and we might have gotten, again, productively distracted, but the idea of people struggle, yeah, people struggle with the waiting, people wanting to move through grief too quickly, and I think you touched on how as Christians we're so tempted to uh, slap a Band-Aid or just make things, like, redeem it immediately. Is there, like, an example, like, what what has helped you, right, because I'm sure I've done this myself, I've been on the receiving end. What is like wisdom that we as the church can start chewing on and sharing with one another to not just try to quote unquote fix someone's pain, right? So if you're thinking about someone's hurting, is there like something that we can do like to realize within ourselves? Is it like our own discomfort? Is there things that we can learn to just not say? Um, I mean, granted, like a lot of grain of salt here. I don't, I'm not trying to say that you have all the answers, but you're, you're a human being, you're smart, you're, you're trying. What have you found effective, helpful, redeeming in, in those areas of life? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. Yeah. Um, and I would just qualify this. I don't think that God has called us to fix people. He's called us to be present with people. And even within our presence, part of what we're called to do is just tangibly love the people that are in front of us. So one example that I have is, uh, there was a woman, a uh, family in our church, uh, but specifically there was a woman in our church who um, son committed suicide. And the morning that that happened, I went to her house. And as you would imagine, just complete and utter devastation. And all the things that we're talking about right now, not having answers, not understanding why, all of that was being it was real. And, and this woman was in a very raw way crying out uh, to the point where it was uncontrollable and I would say was very appropriate. And I remember sitting with her on her couch and thinking as I was watching all of this, I have nothing to offer her. And that can feel really vulnerable, but in that moment it actually felt very comforting because I realized God didn't call me to offer her anything other than myself and my presence with her. And so for me in that moment, it was a hand on a shoulder or it was just sitting there as she went through a wave of emotions that day and then the days to follow. And, and I think that for me, it knowing who God is, knowing what only God can provide, while that could create insecurity and saying, well, what am I supposed to do? I think that I had to lean in the discomfort of just knowing I can't do anything. And, she, and even if I could do something, that's not what she needs right now. She just needs to know that she's not alone And she needs to see real tears that are being cried with her and to know that there's other people grieving as they are walking alongside her. The other example that I will give you is being on the other side of things. And again, I don't want to minimize um, pain and grief that people are walking through in their own story. But several years back, um, I went through a really scary incident where I had two emergency surgeries back to back and in the span of about six hours. And I will tell you, that the second surgery, whether it was true or not, I felt like going into that surgery, I don't know if I'm going to come out of this. So it was that real, uh, where I felt I had to confront the reality of death in ways that I am oftentimes unaware of on a day-to-day basis. And the days that followed, I remember just sitting in a hospital room, and I was there for about six days. So you got to remember, right? Like I'm typically the, the one who goes to do hospital visits. I've never been on the receiving end, especially when I was still pretty emotionally vulnerable and raw um, and pretty disoriented coming out of a surgery like that and just all the unknowns that came with it. And I remember that moment as people came to visit me. um, All I wanted was them. I didn't want answers. I didn't want, hey, you're going to be okay. I didn't want, man, what what a rough situation. It's too bad, but at least it wasn't this. Uh, All I wanted was to see them. All I needed was a smile or just a look or even just a prayer. And that was enough to communicate to me that I am not alone. And the reason why I share that is because I know that early on when I was a pastor, especially early on when I was doing a lot of hospital visits, I felt so much pressure and so much weight to show up and essentially be people's savior and and to find a way to comfort them beyond the moment or to find a way to make it all better. And when I was now the patient in the chair, I realized people don't need any of that. And and maybe sometimes people do. So I don't want to like fully disregard any of that, but what people need most is just your presence. So I will tell you, it is deeply uncomfortable. 
It is so hard to just sit. It's so hard to live in the vulnerability of looking at a person saying, I have nothing to offer you. And yet I actually believe that's exactly who God's called us to be. And one of the first steps that we take when it comes to walking with people in their grief. Mm. Man, I, I love and hate that, right? Because I think uh, in some ways, maybe our professors have some some overlap, right? As a counselor, like, sure. uh, you know, people are coming to uh, meet goals and such. And it's so easy for me to have that same mindset. Like, I feel the pressure of fixing. And I hate that, that it's my pride that hates this, that it seems like sessions seem to go the best when I, I realize I don't have anything to offer, yeah. when there is no agenda, when it is just space like you're talking about. Yeah. And it's fascinating. Like, I mean, it's just where my mind goes. It's like, it's this loving act of God to um, humble us so that he gets the glory and we actually then don't exhaust ourselves to death. Yeah. That we're like going along with our father, with our daddy, uh, doing good works, but he's the one accomplishing them. Yeah. Because if, if we're doing that, because I mean, I've tried that on my own too, like what I'm doing on my own, it's exhausting. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. But, but here's the other piece of it. Let me just interrupt you for a second because I think this is fascinating. I'll, I'll offer you a counseling story and again, offer you the other side of this. So, I was in counseling for a number of years, uh, just kind of confronting some trauma in my own life and trying to walk through it. And I remember in particular this one session that I had with my counselor. It was one of those sessions where by the end, everything in my life felt disrupted and disoriented. Uh, I felt like we untangled so many things and I was left in this vulnerability of like, I don't know what to do. And I was angry and I didn't want to leave the office. Because what I wanted from him, now this is the interesting thing, right? I wanted answers for him. So in that moment, I actually did want him to fix it. So this is the opposite of what we're talking about right now. I'm sitting there saying, no, fix me. Give me answers. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to believe. And my counselor did one of the most loving things a person has ever done. He said, no. And I said, why? He said, here's why. Because you don't need to hear from me. You don't need answers from me. You don't need an encounter with me. You need it from the Lord. And for me to give you answers right now, which I probably could, would undermine the way that the Lord may want to work in your heart and may want to work in your story as you leave here. And what's fascinating, right, because he, he knew this in a way that I had not yet seen it yet, was that's exactly what happened. That I left, and I had to sit in the pain, and I had to sit in the discomfort, and I had to sit in the grief, and yet... I chose to go to the Lord with that. And the Lord met me and, and in a lot of ways provided transformation and hope and comfort to my story that in a way I would have missed and deprived myself of if my counselor would have given me answers. So that's the fascinating dynamic, even as we talk about this, is, is that it's not just humbling yourself, but it's also having a self-awareness enough to know that what people need most from me is not me as the pastor. It's what people need most is the Lord. And part of my desire, at least part of what my goal should be, is to move them along where they can experience what he has to offer to them, not me. Because I have temporary fixes. I have quick solutions. And in a lot of ways, it's not going to provide ultimately what people need most in their grief and in their pain. That's really good. Well said. Anything else uh, jumping, jumping in your mind as you're reflecting? We've covered a lot of good stuff. Anything else coming to, to mind right now? Well, let's, let's do this. Let's talk about the other side of this because I think that this is important. Yeah. So one of the things that Jesus says to Lazarus' sisters is when they say, God, or Jesus, where were you? Uh, his response is, I'm the resurrection and the life. Hmm. So, so here's the other side of this. We spent a lot of time talking about how we can quickly move to redemptive hope at, to the point where we shortchange the things that God wants to do in somebody's story. But here is the good news for a follower of Jesus. There is real hope. And we can't minimize resurrection in life. And what I love, and I think that Tim Keller said this about even this passage one time, he said, while we may not always have the answers, what we do know is what the answers aren't. It's not because God doesn't love us. He came down for us. It's not that God doesn't care. He went to the cross on our behalf. And one of the things that Keller goes on to say is God not only entered into our pain, but he took it on himself. And I think that that's the, that's the biggest point of hope is that we worship a God that empathizes with our pain, that we worship with a God that took on pain himself. So what that means is when we cry out in our pain and in our suffering, 
we are crying out to a God that doesn't sit on an ivory tower disconnected and distant from us, but we, t- we, sit, we cry out to a God that entered in on our behalf. And not only did he enter in, and not only does he empathize, but he offered us hope and victory in our pain in the fact that he went to a cross and he rose from a grave. And so there is a Revelation 21 reality uh, that we are promised one day that because of Jesus, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. And so I think that for the Christian, we live in this tension of how do we reconcile the pain that we're walking through, knowing that we aren't going to fully have answers, while also trusting and believing that we have a God that one day provides a final answer, and the final answer is eternity. And the final answer is this side or, or that side of heaven, that there will be no more pain, that there will be no more suffering. And so I, I think that we can't minimize that, and it could be easy in a conversation because we're talking about a real human experience. But what I have found is... And again, I've done a lot of funerals for Christians, and I've also been and even occasionally done funerals for non-Christians. And when you do a funeral or you go to a funeral for a non-Christian, it's one of the most hopeless situations that you can experience. Because you can talk about how great they were, you can talk about the impact that they've had, but death gets a period, not a comma in their story. And I think that for us, the hope that we have is death, pain, suffering is a comma, because we know that there's a greater hope and there's a greater answer that we have through Jesus. Man, that's amazing. So I, I love how you're embracing this tension, right? I'm, I'm fascinated, obsessed with you know culture, humans, whatever it is, the combination of the two. We seem to love black and white, right? Yeah. Go to one extreme or the other. Yeah. And so you're inviting us to not, we have the resurrection hope. It is going to be resolved for the believer. It is going to be redeemed. Can be we can see parts of it this 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 side of heaven, but for sure the next you know and the other side of heaven. However you say that, <laughs> and we since that's more comfortable, we don't get to just rush through the pain. Yeah. And so we're inviting that tension of feel your emotions, grieve, don't dishonor yourself, don't dishonor others, but it can't live there forever. It has to also be attached to yeah. the resurrection. Yeah. And so that's where it's like very, it's clunky, right? It's like, yeah. I've never driven a stick shift, but from what I understand from movies, if you're doing the <laughs> stick shift wrong, you're, you're, you're jostling around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the questions I regularly get asked as a pastor is what does it look like to grieve well or to suffer well? And it seems like an oxymoron question, right? It's a paradoxical question because doing something well in the midst of grief seems impossible. And I think that what we're identifying, what we're talking about, is what it looks like to grieve and suffer well. It's to live in tension, uh, or, or some people call it to live in the messy middle, uh, to know that there is real pain, uh, to validate that pain, to validate all the feelings and the grief that comes along with that, and yet to do so with hope and with an awareness of what's to come. And I think that that's what I feel like I'm always trying to pastor people to, And depending on where people are in that moment, I'm trying to emphasize one or the other. Because for some people, right, and this does happen, um, they can't look beyond the pain that they're in and the suffering that they're in, and there there is no hope. It feels bleak. And so in those moments, I'm trying to pastor people to say, hey, but don't forget. Don't forget who you are in Jesus, and don't forget what you've been promised because of Jesus. And then again, there's other people. They quickly slap on the... It's going to be okay. You're going to be better. And that's where I'm trying to pastor them back into, yes, but the pain that you're experiencing is real. And if you don't honestly deal with this, it is going to continue to rise up and be a source of tension for you for the rest of your life. And I think that that's the the tension that we live in as people, but also that's the tension that we're called to enter in with other people as counselors or as pastors or as friends or parents or whatever role that you have to the person you may be walking alongside. So swinging back to the whole men encountering emotions, what do you think are helpful uh, tools maybe that you've learned or as a pastor, um, what is a challenge or encouragement for men to engage their emotions? Right. Man, it's a great question. Um, So I know that as a counselor, you are going to think that I was paid to say this, but I wasn't. <laughs> I love it. Um, I mean, honestly, what what has been transformational for me has been going to counseling. I actually didn't even expect that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Everybody's going to think, oh, this is a paid advertisement. But <laughs> but to be honest with you, uh, as I said earlier, no one, no one taught me or modeled for me what it looks like to be honest and raw in my grief. And so I think for many people, 
Um, I could give you a book, I could give you a resource, but but that is not going to lead you in a process. I had to sit in the vulnerability of my own story, and I had to do that with somebody that I trusted, and I had to do that with somebody who understood grief beyond what I had experienced up to that point in my life and created an environment that was safe and comfortable for me and also was willing to walk out a long process with me because it's not like I walked into counseling day one and all of a sudden I became more aware of my emotions. And to be honest with you, some people might listen to this and think, well, that's the last thing I want to do. Uh, But what I had to realize was uh, I am not living into the fullness of who God made me to be. And as I started going through counseling and started to redefine the way that I thought about emotion and grief, and, and we're talking about grief as one emotion right now. There's a lot of emotions that I came more in tune with. What I began to realize was I became a more full person. What does that mean? It means I knew how to communicate with my wife on a deeper level. I knew how to move beyond the surface to engage her heart. And as she asked me questions to do that as well, I will tell you today, I'm a much better dad uh, because as my kids are experiencing their own grief and the minds of a nine and a six-year-old, which are very real things, rather than just saying, hey, get over it. Hey, you're going to be fine. Hey, get better. I can now with integrity enter into that in a way that is honest and vulnerable for them so that maybe I can reverse a generational pattern that's existed for me and the family that I've been a part of to say, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be emotional. It's okay to express a level of frustration right now, but let's deal with that together. So for me, counseling has been a big part of it. I think for me, it's also been a part of a church community uh, that is willing to invite that. Um, One of the things that I seek to do as a pastor is to lead from the front in a very vulnerable way. And part of what I'm seeking to do is create a culture of vulnerability in my church uh, in a way that begins to give permission for people to live that out in their own lives. And so what we're seeking to do uh, in our church while we're not there yet is to cultivate community where people are able to experience that and express that with one another in a way that's safe, in a way that's honoring um, two people. And so w- what I would say is maybe in summary, uh, it requires intentionality. Um, I don't think that you just stumble into that, especially if, you, if you're if you not conditioned that way. And what I found is it often takes people who are steps ahead of you that are willing to lead you in that and bring you along with them. But here's what it requires from you, willingness <laughs> and a willingness to be honest and a willingness to live in the vulnerability of the unknowns that may come through relationships like that. I love that. And I just have to give a personal shout out. I really appreciate your vulnerability from the pulpit. Yeah. Thank Um, you. I, I, I long and hope for, for so many more pastors to have that. I feel like that's in my own short synopsis of my story. It was, it was hard always feeling like there was this massive a gap or chasm between pastor and parishioner. I've never said that before. Yeah. Whatever you got, attender, yeah, congregant, thank you, attender. Yeah, whatever you want to call <laughs> it. Go formal, um, but it's just it's helpful, right? Just to, like we're all we're all humans. We're all doing yeah. this together, and I think that's so awesome to show. You know, with power and strength, that actually those things come in the sense of like being vulnerable and being together, and not looking like we all just have it together because no one does. Yeah. Well, well, here's what I mean. Here's why I've done this, and maybe this is why this is so close to my heart. Um, for a lot of my life, I've struggled with depression and anxiety. And that's been a big part of my story that I've spoken very honestly about from the pulpit. And one of the struggles that I had, especially when I was a teenager and I was a part of the church, was I could not reconcile how I felt with what I was seeing. And I felt like often I would go to church and everybody put on their Sunday best and everybody had a smile and everybody was throwing kind of spiritual high fives to one another. And it looked like this utopian place And while there was real joy that I never want to minimize, I also felt like this is not the most honest expression of where people are and how people feel. And what it did for me was it made me feel incredibly isolated. Um, I regularly walked away from church feeling a sense of shame, wondering what's wrong with me. Um, Everybody else seems to have their life together. Everybody else seems so happy, and I'm not. And I just didn't know how to reconcile that. And so, again, this is all about, it feels like it's become the theme of this podcast, living in tension. I think as a church, sometimes we can swing the pendulum to one side or the other, right? So we're going to be so raw. We're going to be so honest with our emotion that it's like, hey, isn't there joy in the Lord that we need to experience in name? Uh. But on the other side, it can just be all joy and 
everything's great because of what we have in the Lord. And it's like, yes, but don't minimize the real human experiences and the real human grief and suffering that are walking through your door every Sunday. And so I think that a lot of it's just from my own story of having to, one, confront that in my own life and even just wonder at times and feeling of shame, what's wrong with me, to then say, how do I cultivate a church environment that is really seeking to do both of those well? We will have joy. We will rejoice. We will praise God. And yet we'll also be honest with how we're walking in. I hear churches say this a lot, right? Um, they'll say this in a call to worship, like, hey, we're so glad that you're here. This is an opportunity for check all the things that you're bringing in at the door. And I actually think that the call of the church is to say, no, bring all those things that you brought through the door into this space because we believe that God is big enough to receive you in it. And we believe that God actually has something to say to you while you're walking through it today. And I think that that's part of what hopefully the church is able to be as a place where people are seen and safe, but also feel like there's a real God that we can worship and cry out to that meets us in it and that we can rejoice in. That is powerful. It's interesting, and I'm so thankful you shared your part of your story. I had some similar experiences with yeah. church. I went the other extreme of uh, and basically just being stewing in the negativity and not yeah. almost getting bitter to, to the happiness sure. and then just being like cynical yeah. of joy because it was like, man, like this makes me like you feel isolated, shame, what's wrong with me. And like, this just places it for me. Yeah. But I love how you're saying it's, it's the both. It's the, it should be a place of uh, kind of like broken beauty, redeeming pain. Yeah. Like it's that, it's this, this paradox. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always call it with our church. Uh, we got to live in the beautiful mess Yeah, and we live in a messy world, but because of who God is, we can find beauty in it. And and that's right, because it is easy. And, and I was prone to do this for a long time, uh, to be cynical, um, to almost just say, forget this, I can't be around these people. And what I've had to learn over time is, especially if I'm experiencing depression or suffering or grief, is sometimes I need those people. Because those people allow me to look outside myself uh, to realize that the pain I'm walking through is not the full story of what is happening in my life or even what's happening in the life of this church. And that's why, yeah, that tension, the beautiful mess, the paradox that comes through that is, I think, the call of the church and the types of environments that we are seeking to cultivate uh, as we walk with people. That makes me think of two things. Hopefully, I'll say them now. Hopefully, we get to both if we have time. Um, so it makes me think of one thing that people often will say, you know, I, I was struggling, I was grieving, or, or something happens in life and they're hurt by a Christian, and that gets immediately associated with God. Yeah. So if I, you know, like in, on some levels, there, there is a fair criticism, I think, right? We're yeah. ambassadors of Christ, like we're supposed to be little Christians. Obviously, we're going to fail, um, but they have, a, I think, a, on some level, an accurate judgment. Man, it should be different. Agree. What would you say to someone, whether Christian or non, that's like, man, I've experienced Christians either being too flippant with pain or, or something along that nature, and then they assume that that is who God is. Yeah, I'll say two things. One is, because I think there's two ways this manifests itself. One is, and I say this a lot to people, don't don't blame God for our foolishness. Um, so, so what I mean by that is uh, a lot of times the way we live is very inconsistent with who God is and what we see in Scripture. And I think that we've got to remind People love that. Uh, that's the reason why you and I need God just as much as the next person, right? Because uh, we're flawed, we're sinful. Uh, there's brokenness that exists within us. And so I think helping walk that out with people, and that's a slow walk. I mean, that takes time because what I found is uh, oftentimes what is drawing that conclusion is in the moments of greatest vulnerability or pain, people misrepresented the heart of God. And so it's not just walking out this misperception of God, it's also walking out the trauma that has existed with them as a result of what they've experienced with that person. But I would say the other side of this, and this is a little bit different, is where I've seen pain manifest itself, or at least that perception is, there's different expectations of what care needs to look like. And so it's been very interesting for me, especially to see this in the life of the church, is when people are experiencing deep pain, when expectations are not named, for care, it can leave people feeling isolated and bitter because they, they thought you should have done better because you follow Jesus, because of what you stand for, you should have cared for me more 
And oftentimes we, we can rarely live up to the expectations that people have of us in, in our pain, or I'm sorry, in their pain. Some of that's spoken, some of that's unspoken. And so what I've always tried to encourage people, and again, I've gotten this wrong more times than I've gotten this right, to be honest with you, is try to be clear up front and try to be honest up front with what you can and can't provide. Uh, as we talked about um, not being able to fix people, I think sometimes we need to remind people of our limits, of our, of our ability to care. Because guess what? Sometimes people do want to be rescued. And we just have to say, hey, I can't do all those things. And I'm sorry. I wish I could. And then being able to walk through what is a realistic expectation. Because I've seen it, man. People walk away from the church uh, really bitter because they thought that the church should have done more. And maybe the church should have. But either the church was unable to or they didn't know how. And because no one ever communicated that, it just leaves this wake of frustration and bitterness. That is an excellent uh, call out of unspoken expectations. Yeah. I've been guilty of that a million times in my life and get frustrated or bitter with people because I didn't even give them the opportunity to try to serve me or care for me because I wasn't asking. Yeah. Is either too vulnerable or I think they should read my mind yeah. or, or yeah. And then I love that you're saying like, Hey, then the Christian or whoever is asked of for care, uh, having one direct communication, but then also setting boundaries and expectations like, Hey, I can do this. I can't do that. Yeah. So that everybody's on the same page. Cause it's a lot less. It sounds like I would think at least for me, uh, a lower blow if I know what I'm going into and Hey, maybe it's still missed the mark by 10% versus like I was expecting, you know, a hundred and I got five. Yeah. And so I love that you're calling it out. I had this moment when I was 17 and I was kind of at the height of depression and was suffering significantly. And I had this breakdown and just lost it and uh, did so in front of my parents and was sobbing to the point where it was uncontrollable, which was very rare for me. And, um, I, I remember the thing I kept saying in, uh, in my tears was, nobody cares. I just wish people care. And my parents, who actually have done really well some of the things that we're talking about, uh, just kind of sat with me in that. And then I remember towards the end, my dad asking me this question. Uh, he said, have you communicated to other people how you need to be cared for? And I was like, no. And then he said, have you cared for people in the same way that you want to be cared for? I said, no. He said, Tim, I'm not minimizing anything that you feel right now, but I do want to acknowledge that there's an expectation that you've had for people that you never communicated with them. And you're holding them to a standard that they're not even aware of. And he's like, again, it doesn't minimize how you feel, but I also want you to understand what may be the disconnect between what's in your head or what's in your heart or what you need versus the reality of what you're experiencing. And that really was a moment for me that was just kind of one of those gut punches in all the right ways. It just made me say, you know what? Like I am holding people to an expectation I never communicated with them. So how do I do that better in the future? Uh, especially how do I do that when I'm suffering or when I'm struggling to ask for help? Mm. That, so I, I I love you sharing that story. It's an incredible personal example. And maybe this is a tangent. Maybe it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. It's something I'm passionate about where in this world, again, very limited knowledge over here, what I think I'm interpreting from various media outlets is that love means never telling people they're wrong. Love <laughs> never means yeah. correcting. Yeah. And obviously, like, I mean, at least from my lens, like, sure, maybe there's, hundreds and hundreds of years of people abusing power, people saying, um, do this without the loving compassion, people judging the sinner without loving, judging the sinner and the sin without loving the sinner. Yeah. Where's that fine line or, or talk to me about that. If that's something that interests you, how do we, cause love, like you said, and I've, I've experienced that in my, in my life, the most life giving moments sometimes have been some of the most painful yeah. where I have to say, Oh my gosh, I've got it all wrong. I'm blaming other people for something I'm responsible of too. It's yeah. easier to blame someone else than to take personal responsibility. Any thoughts on all that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that how do we do it? We, we look at Jesus. And, and to me, this is, this is the whole ministry of Jesus. This is what makes Jesus such a compelling person uh, beyond being Lord and Savior. Where if you really read through the Gospels, um, over and over again, what you see through Jesus is he tells the truth. Um, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat a lot. Like, like go read the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's not holding back much, right? He, he's speaking in a very direct way, and he's speaking towards godliness, or he's speaking towards what it looks like to faithfully follow 
the Lord. And yet, when you read the Gospels, who is Jesus always attracting? He's attracting the people that those words should be most piercing towards. And, and people are compelled towards Jesus. Uh, they don't run away from him. And so there's something that Jesus understood that I think that we've lost sight of as a society or maybe the church or maybe just as individuals, which is we are called to speak truth. Even as we talk about grief right now, um, I talk about being present with people. I talk about offering presence. And one of the things that I shared earlier is that's a first step, but that's not the only step because there have been times where as I've walked through with people, it may be a year down the road and they're still living in the disillusionment or the bitterness or the anger or the frustration towards God. And it's in those moments where I think I am called to speak truth, uh, where I've honored where they've been. And yet at the same time, I have to remind them of the truth of who God is and how he meets them in their story. And so we can't just like put a blanket over that and say, we aren't called to ever speak truth or to be direct with people or sometimes to lovingly say hard things to people. But I think that our tone and our posture matter and I think that allowing, doing it in a way that allows people to know that at the end of the day, I am for you and I'm not going anywhere. I am in this with you because that's what Jesus did over and over again. He saw people, he walked with people, and then he reinforced his love to them through his presence is I think that what we have to offer. And again, it's, it's the theme of what we're talking about this entire time. It's the tension, right? It's truth, but doing doing so in a way that is loving and present with the people that we're walking alongside. It makes at least uh, something that really stood out to me is the sense of like uh, being able to speak truth, but then as Jesus, he didn't let the sin, the difficulty disqualify that person from That's dignity, right. That's right. from receiving love, from receiving presence. I love like, and, and maybe you're intentionally you know dropping this because you've been to counseling. It like, sounds like secure attachment. Yeah. I'm not going yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Like even though, because you screw up, I screw up, we all screw up. That isn't what determines relationship. That when we're making a mistake, that we just cut people off and we just get rid of them. And it sounds like Jesus is like, hey, he's going to call the truth what it is. But he's also saying like, I'm not wagging my finger at you. I'm not just saying you're disgusting, you're garbage. These are problems. This is cancer inside your body. It's not, it's going to kill you. That's right. But I'm also here and I love you. And like, I'm giving you my presence. That's right. Is that because I'm not going to lie. There's sometimes we're like, I probably swing too far one way or the other. As the counselor, I probably swing way too far for the compassion, kind, love side. Sure. Um, and especially because I, I don't know, I, I maybe I listen to the wrong people or don't hear. That's not the way I mean it. But like, I don't hear enough of the messages that that if it's love, it's just ignoring the problem. But if it's calling to attention, it doesn't seem like there's that that kind, warm care. How is that something we just like ask Jesus to invite us? Is that we're like counseling is helpful? Is that we're like we ask our friends like how do you perceive me? Um, what are like things that help us more accurately hold that tension of because I, I feel like I know a lot of Christians that might do the speaking of truth well, but maybe not the love and the kindness well. What would be a good encouragement for that? Yeah, what I would say is here's where you should begin. Begin by reading the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus. And then as you look at the life of Jesus, think about what are the stories that you oftentimes elevate? Uh, because often what we do is we elevate the stories that we want to be most true about who we are, how we live, right? And I see this all the time on both sides of the spectrum. Some people love to elevate the story of Jesus turning over the tables, right? And it's here's, here's Jesus with righteous anger, and here's Jesus speaking the truth, and here's Jesus who's casting judgment, and then there's other, the other side of the spectrum, which is, here's Jesus, loving, compassion, tender, kind. And, and then there's a lot of other stories in between. And I think that we, again, want to try to put Jesus in a box, and oftentimes the box that we want to put him in is the box that most reflects who we are and the things that we want to elevate in our lives. And so what I would say is, one, uh, go read the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus and look at the way that he balances some of the things that we're talking about then I think beyond that, consider the people that you put yourself around. And are you putting yourself around people that are reinforcing all the same aspects of who you are, or are you putting yourself around people who are going to challenge you uh, just because of the fact that they're different? Temperamentally, they're different. Uh, their, their makeup is different. Uh, and I think that that's a key component. And then three, yeah, there may be, hey, spend some time in counseling, 
and get in touch with aspects of who you are that are outside of, or maybe you have a barrier towards uh, that feels so far impossible because of places of trauma, or it's so outside of your comfort zone that you need someone to guide you along in that process. What I think I heard you saying around being aware of who we're surrounding ourselves. Maybe I'm just reading into this because I'm obsessed with the cultural context. Maybe it sounds like you're saying if we're not around people that make us uncomfortable, we should be really curious about that. If we only are around people that say the same things that we we believe or agree, that and, and I'm not saying like the Jesus crucifixion, sure. like the core truth that's very different sure. than if people just, you know, Anything we're saying, they're going to agree with us. Instead of, hey, friend, have you seen it from this lens? Have you seen it? Is it, is it fair that's an appropriate pushback that we should have people that think different than us, that, that see the world different than us, and, and make us uncomfortable sometimes? Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of what you're acknowledging is just even ideological or theological or, or, or whatever difference. I think some of what I'm even suggesting is just temporal difference. Temporal, ah, okay. And, and what I mean by that is... There are times, and again, I see this a lot with guys. Um, so maybe I'm, maybe this is specific to guys. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, women experience this as well. But I find that what a lot of men do is they put themselves around a, a lot of other guys who are just like them in temperament. So let's say that you're more of a gruff, rugged guy. You're going to put yourself around guys that are like that. And then all of a sudden, if you have a guy who is more sensitive in nature – um, who is more in touch with emotion, who is maybe more self-aware um, and draws that out, that also provides discomfort for people. And so they quickly judge them or they cast them off. Or I think that we have done a huge disservice to men because we've had a very narrow definition of masculinity. And we've now cast off uh, the temperament of a lot of men and have caused them to question a lot about who they are and whether or not they can be accepted in that. And I think that that's more of what I'm getting at that becomes problematic. And so what I want to do is I want to put myself around people who are different than me. One, just to challenge me by who they are. And it's offering me ways that I can grow in that, but also who are going to see the world differently because they're going to have perceptions and insights and awareness of things that I'm not because of just the makeup of who I am. Hmm. Thanks for clarifying. I don't think I even noticed. I mean, I heard you say the word temporarily, but I don't think I, or temperamentally, and I don't think I fully grasp that. That's an interesting perspective that like, if I'm just around other men, they're like, all we're going to, and I'm just being stereotypical. Sure. Sorry, apologies. All we're going to do is watch baseball. We're going to have a drink and we just keep it very surface level. If there's a person that were to come in and a man who's a little more in touch with his emotions, wants to talk about marriage, wants to talk about other things, and then now there's this like, eh, he doesn't really fit with us. It's challenging people to be open to um, different personalities, different emotional depth and thoughts. Because, um, I mean, I, I've been a deep feeler and sometimes it's been it's been challenging but really helpful for me to be around other people who are a little more stoic. Yes. Like, oh. Yes. I don't have to live in my emotions. They don't have to guide and direct everything. I've seen other people example it. It's this really humbling thing that I've been like uh, wrestling with lately. It's like, I wonder if God made us all so different so that we we're at least invited to be humble to see we can learn so much about others, but maybe also even more about God if we're open to what we with the pieces that we don't have. That's 100% it. Because I think that when we put ourselves around people who are just like us, and then the consequence is it gives us a very narrow perception of who God is. And again, if we're image bearers, then what we have to believe is even the, the, the diverse temperaments that people have are aspects of who God is. And I think to me, that's the power of the church. And that's where the church becomes a holistic place where that type of community can be facilitated because the beauty of the church is when done right, I guess I should qualify is you have a lot of different people who are living side by side in community with one another. It's going to automatically push you out of your comfort zone and put you around people and do life with people who are going to be different. And I, I think that if you're not in environments where that is able to be cultivated, you are depriving yourself, uh, one, from just growing in who you are, but you're also depriving yourself from uh, the holistic vision of who God is in his heart and, and even his temperament. Yeah. I mean, that's humbling because I, I think of like even just on a maybe micro level marriage. My wife is so different than me. Yeah. And, and my, yeah. my pride and my sin would always just make it, well, she just needs to change and she's wrong. And then thank God for beautiful, good Christian marriage counseling, like challenging me to see she has things to offer. 
she's going to see things differently than I, I never That's thought right. of. And I can either get frustrated and feel self-justified that it needs to be my way, or I can be open to seeing how God wired her. And it's, it's, it's like, it's amazing how like sanctification is so painful, but it's also beautiful. It's That's like right. so richer. Like now I can't even imagine that, like, I'm not perfect at all. I have so much to learn, but the early days of marriage being like that heart and the burden and weight I carried versus now this, I feel like more easygoing because instead of feeling I have to prove my voice or my way, I'm just like, I'm curious, more curious, I should say. Yeah. Um, one more thing before we'll probably have to wrap up for today. You mentioned uh, masculinity. Um, if this feels like I'm putting you two on the spot, because it's a big question, I probably had a lot of big questions today, but um, what would you say, how would you define healthy, right? If we talk about toxic masculinity, that's kind of a buzzword. Uh, what are some of the things that you would, uh, from your lens at least, describe or ascribe to as, as healthy, godly even masculinity, right? Because we don't want to just go in the culture route of like, okay, these are the things, but what is a godly man? What does godly masculinity look like? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a full answer. Sure, right. Um, <laughs> We're just shooting the breeze. <laughs> yeah, we really are. Um, I, I think... This is going to feel like a sellout answer because I'm a pastor. You're going to say, of course, you're supposed to say this. But I think when you look at a picture of what healthy masculinity is, I think that you see the nature of Jesus. And when you see Jesus, I think that you see balance. Uh, Jesus is tough. Um, And yet at the same time, Jesus is sensitive and aware of others. Uh, We see in this text in John 11, going back to this, that, that Jesus is willing to weep and grieve for his friend And yet at the same time, Jesus lives with courage, so much so that he goes to a cross on our behalf. And I think that as we consider toxic masculinity or just the narrow definitions that we have of masculinity, I think that what we are prone to do is very quickly create these categories and to say to be a man is to be these three or four things. And we have a very limited view of what it actually is supposed to be, where when you look at the nature of Jesus, you look at the heart of God, it's holistic in nature. Um, And also, I don't think that it's defined in one or two ways that oftentimes we do in society, that to be a man is uh, to watch sports and to be really tough and to have a lot of sex and to uh, be excellent and put all your identity in your work. Um, I don't think that that's what being a man is. I think being a man is having the heart of Jesus and living that out and being faithful into who God created you to be. And as you do that, to continue to grow and to challenge yourself to move outside of your comfort to be more and more like him. So that's a pretty broad answer. Um, It probably even feels like, again, a cop-out answer. Um, But I think to me, it's the most accurate answer because in a lot of ways, I've had to break down so many of the expectations and definitions that I had of what I thought it was to be a man. And I will tell you, it has made me more self-aware. It has made me more sensitive. It has pushed me outside of my comfort zone. But it also has brought a level of health and a level of intentionality and a level of growth in the Lord that I think otherwise I never would have experienced because I would have had such a limited understand. I had such a limited understanding of what it was. Absolutely. I think you're giving, you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think at least what I'm hearing is, yeah, sure. It's broad, but I think the call is just like with any topic in this or sermon, there's a call to go deeper. We have to go deeper. Yeah, We're setting, it's, good. it's almost teeing people up for, well, I need to take it upon myself to investigate with an open mind, who is this Jesus? And a random scripture popped in my head this morning, which is like, man, I'd love to have a conversation about this someday. Because you got, I think it's the Old Testament, pretty sure. But yeah, Jesus is quoted in the Old Testament. Talking about, I think, the Father God uh, drawing uh, chicks like a hen would gather, or like a hen would gather its chicks, right? Seems like a, a fairly feminine thing. It's very tender. It's very nurturing. So if we're not like seeing the scripture in the whole text, and not not that we, you know, God isn't feminine. He is Father, but He's showing an aspect that we might miss. And then you say like, well, then Jesus is flipping over tables too. We have to go deeper into the story and see the holistic picture. And the very, like the 3D image, if you will, yeah. we can't just take one story and define that as Jesus. My temptation is the counselors like, see, Jesus is crying. So men should cry. And you're yeah. saying, hey, we also have to see these tough. He's also willing to go to a cross. He's also willing to, he's, he's very nuanced. Yeah, it's a great way of saying it. He's nuanced. And therefore, I think that we have to have more nuanced definitions as we think about who God's called us to be, whether it's as a man or it's as a woman. And, and as a human. And so I just think that that to me is 
where we oftentimes lose sight of that. And then, and then if we kind of go full circle here, that, then here's what ends up happening. We live into those stereotypes. And again, we deprive ourselves from growing, but I also think that we deprive ourselves from being the people that God has called us to be with one another um, because we can't offer what we're not ourselves or what we're willing to grow into in the ways that we're willing to go deeper. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, Tim, Holly, it has been a pleasure sitting with you. Thank you yes. so much for your time. I know you're a very busy guy and it's awesome to hear your heart, what you have to share in these matters. Um, yeah. Anything else that you want to say before we, we sign off for today? Yeah, it's been a joy to be here. I'm just grateful for your heart and your willingness to take people deeper. And uh, my encouragement for you all as you listen to this is uh, take one thing away and just wrestle with it and challenge yourself. Uh, even if you you listen to some of this and you say, well, I don't know if I fully agree with that or that feels uncomfortable. Uh, as we talked about waiting on the Lord, uh, sit in that and, and to know that uh, this is just part of taking steps and growing into who God created us to be. So, man, I'm grateful for you, that you're willing to do this. And I know this has been really life-giving for me as well. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's awesome to have you. And we'll see you later. 